Our reading this evening is taken from the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, from verse 11 to 15. I think it'll be on the screen. When Christ came as high priest, the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not of this creation. He did not enter by means of blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption, the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died, a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. As Stephen said, my name's Emily. If I haven't met you before, it's lovely to meet you now. I'm not the Emily that you're used to seeing up here. She is far cooler than me. I don't wakeboard and do fun things like that, but hopefully I'll do. <laughs> um, so as Stephen said, we are starting um, a new series tonight called Cross-Shaped Lives on our lead up to Easter. And when I heard that this is the series we'd be starting, it got me thinking about uh, the cross, obviously. Um, but it particularly struck me how many different aspects there are to the cross. The cross represents so many things, and Jesus dying on the cross really does change everything. But sitting with this pa uh, particular passage tonight has has blown my mind on how heartbreakingly beautiful it is that through Jesus' death on the cross, we find freedom. We gain freedom. We are set free. The moment that Jesus is most unfree somehow is the same moment that bought our freedom. When the Gospels tell us that the soldiers bound him, that they nailed him to a cross and hung him up in a, in a position where he couldn't get himself down, enduring torture that eventually would lead to him not even being able to breathe. Through his act of complete sacrifice of all freedom, giving up his own life, we, the broken people, the ones who have failed God a hundred times and will fail him a thousand more, somehow we are the ones that were bought eternal freedom on the cross. It just blows my mind. How does that work? How does that bring us freedom? In my humble opinion, it's a lot like the final scene in Braveheart. Um, so this is gonna be spoilers for those of you who haven't seen it, but if you haven't seen it by now, you're probably not ever gonna see it. So I will just ruin it for you in this moment. Um, so the final climactic moment in this movie sees our protagonist, William Wallace, who is a Scottish warrior leading the Scottish people in a rebellion against the pagan king of England and his power and his control. And in this scene, Wallace is being hung, drawn and quartered. And the camera takes us to this shot where he's lying in a cross shape, clearly enduring immense physical pain. It's, it's hard to watch and then the camera starts flicking between those scenes and the scenes of this pagan king of England in his bed, on his deathbed dying of a disease. 
And the camera is panning back and forth, back and forth. And finally, it lands on Wallace's eyes, looking as though they're about to give up altogether as he loses his life. When all of a sudden, in that final moment, using his final breath, he releases an almighty cry of freedom. And then he dies. The man who sacrificed himself to be the one to release the Scots from the the power and control of the King of England. But interestingly, in that moment, he's not the only one to die. As Wallace shouts and proclaims freedom, the pagan King of England also breathes his last breath. In that moment, Wallace seems to defeat his nemesis, the true enemy. And in a far greater, holier, eternal, yet still gruesome and tragic way, The cross is Jesus' moment where he proclaims freedom over us. Except for him, it didn't appear in this big triumphant way, but it was sorrowful and dark as he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit for us. Another spoiler alert though, if you haven't read the Easter story, three days later he blasts open the tomb and has his freedom moment (laughs) instead. So it doesn't end sad, it's all really great. Easter Sunday comes. But still, how does Jesus dying on the cross, proclaiming freedom over all of us, asking the Father to forgive us actually work? How does that work? Well, to unpack this together tonight, we'll need to look way, way back to the Old Testament and then a little way back to Jesus and then focus in on the now and the today on how we live this out. So looking way, way back, our passage tells us in verse 11 that Jesus came as high priest And then in verse 12, that he did not enter by means of blood of goat and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood. So we're told that Christ was both the high priest and the sacrifice. In Old Testament times, once a year, um, the Israelites would celebrate something called the Day of Atonement. And on this day, sacrifices were made to take away the sins of the whole Jewish nation. Now, the Jewish people would do regular sacrifices um, in their day-to-day lives to be clean, but this was a particular festival that they celebrated once a year. And on that day, two goats would be selected by the high priest, and they'd be selected to be sacrificed. And the first goat was offered as a sacrifice for sins, um, and it would be killed, and its blood would be sprinkled over the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, in the temple that the high priest was only allowed to enter on this one day every year because it was considered that holy. And this sacrifice proved as a reminder to every Jew that the goat had taken their sins for them and died in their place. They watched the gruesome death unfold as a reminder that should have been them, but it isn't anymore, and they can go free. And they would, they would be used to sacrifices like that. But unique to the Day of Atonement is the second goat, where the sins were put on the second goat by the high priest. It wasn't killed, um, but instead the high priest would lay his hands on the goat and confess the sins of the nation and impart Israel's sin onto this goat. And this goat was often called a scapegoat. Um, and this scapegoat carrying all the sins of the nation would be, then be led out into the desert. At this point, a man would be selected to take the lamb alone into the desert. And along the way, we are told by Jewish sources that the crowds would gather and spit on this goat and pull its hair out of it and beat it and stab it with spears made of reeds. And if any of you have read the Gospels before, you'll know that the sad truth is that this is also how Jesus was treated on his journey towards the cross. It was gruesome. 
It was horrible. But these people didn't want the goat to stay anywhere near them. And because it was carrying the sins, it was cursed. So they wanted it to go far, far away. So the man would walk it 12 miles out into the desert. And no one else would follow. And then he would release the goat into the wilderness and would stand there and watch the goat as it got further and further away. And eventually the goat would disappear out of sight over the horizon. And at this point, the man would send a signal back across the desert to the waiting people that the goat had disappeared. And in that moment that they would all celebrate that the goat and their sins had gone. If only they only had to do that once. But it wasn't a one-time only festival because the Jews were broken just like we are. They kept getting stuff wrong and those sacrifices were temporary. They had to keep being provided in order for people to stay clean. And so now we come a little bit closer in time to look at Jesus. And our passage tells us how Jesus came as this high priest and the sacrifice all at the same time. When verse 15 is talking about Jesus being a ransom to set us free, it provides us the perfect picture for us of what happens to our sins. They're laid on Jesus, just like they were laid on that goat. And he takes them away. He takes them away forever, far, far, far away over the horizon so we don't have to see them anymore. They're gone. Everything we ever have done or ever will do was laid on Jesus and has been carried away from us. And not just in a poof, disappearing kind of way. They're gone because they've been forgiven. Jesus was the sacrifice and he was the high priest who was able to forgive our sins. He sprinkles his own blood over us as a once and for all sacrifice so that we can be fully forgiven, fully set free and fully transformed for eternity. The cross provides the final day of atonement. No day of atonement is ever needed anymore because Jesus did it all. Jesus provided the ultimate sacrifice. It was a one and done deal, once and for all. So if this is how Jesus dying on the cross brought us freedom, I guess our next question is, why do we need it? Why do we need freedom? Well, the definition of freedom is the state of not being imprisoned or enslaved, which if Jesus had to set us free, suggests that before he died for us, we were imprisoned or enslaved by something. And many of us here will know, um, but this passage also tells us that that something was sin. And Augustine of Hippo defines sin as a word, deed, or desire in opposition to the eternal law of God. In other words, sin is going against God and his perfect ways. And I don't know about you, but for me, when I come to church, or I chat to friends, and I hear people mention the word sin, my mind goes straight to thinking about all those obvious big sins there are in life. The obvious things that people do wrong, like murder, or theft, or addictions, and adultery. Things that tend to be a habitual problem and cause lots of damage and destruction. And I think part of that is because I've known the pain and frustration of some of those more obvious big sins in my life. Don't worry, I haven't murdered anyone. That would be quite a bold confession telling you now. Um, but even if I had, Jesus sets me free. Where, so I've been in this place where even if anyone mentions the S word, my mind would jump straight to these things that I knew I was struggling with. But then I was taught that God sees all sin the same, that to him it all dishonors him. There's no scale, none of it is good. And the reality is, 
We all sin every day. I'm sorry if you're hearing that for the first time, but it's true. We all sin every day and we might be aware of some of our wrongdoings, but there also might be a lot that we're just not seeing at the moment or that we don't even understand is a problem in the first place. I was hanging out with some friends recently, having quite a nice chill time, when one of them decided to ask, what's the biggest sin in your life at the moment? (laughs) And I know what you're thinking, Emily needs to get yourself some less intense friends. But I love this friend and I wouldn't do that. Um, But what surprised me in that moment is firstly how little we ask each other those kind of questions. And I know it seems bold and intense, but they're really important to ask our friends and our brothers and sisters in Christ so we can bring things in the light and live in freedom. Um, But more specifically to what we're talking about today, what, what really struck me was how hard I found it to think of something. I'd spent so long in my life focusing on just these couple of big problems that now God's really helped me to tackle those things. I just realized I hadn't been searching my heart much. I hadn't been asking God, where am I falling short and where am I going wrong? And so I took that moment as an opportunity to ask the the Lord. Um, Be careful what you pray, because he revealed to me a whole bunch of ways in which I'm falling short at the moment, and ways I'm being led astray from his perfect ways. In his kindness, he opened my eyes to the fact that quite often I need to receive man's praise, and this is an issue, because when I desire human affirmation more than I depend on God, that's a problem, because then I'm running after to man's love more than I am the Lord. Or when I look in the mirror and I speak negatively over myself, I'm telling God, you're not the perfect creator and you didn't make me well enough. Or when I procrastinate because I'm feeling low level anxiety over something I need to get done and I'm fearing it's not going to be good enough. And so I escape a little bit and I watch an episode on Netflix or I scroll on Facebook. What I'm really saying is those things are my true help. I'm not the Lord. And when I've got a really busy season of life coming up with packed in weekends and massive deadlines and lots of expectations to meet and I turn around to Jesus and I'm like, mate, it's about to get really busy up in here. So I'll see you on the other side when I got more time to pray and more time to read my Bible. What I'm really saying is I rely more on myself to get me through it than I do on God's strength and help and unconditional love. They're all sins. They all look different, but they're all sins. Why? Well, our passage mentions a new covenant, and in this new covenant and this new this new law, if you will. There's not really a law. Jesus gives us two things to live by. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. And these shortcomings of mine are not leading me to love the Lord and my whole self. They're not leading me to love others well. They're not even leading me to love myself well, which is snuck into that command too. I'm turning away from Jesus' way and going about it by my own standards or by the world's standards. And those standards just aren't good enough. Not because God wants us to be perfect and holy and so he rains down thunder and tells us we're not good enough. They're not good enough because God loves us. Because he knows best. And he knows if we live by anything other than his ways, we'll end up dead. That's what the Bible says. We were dead in our sins. We were as good as dead before Jesus got involved. Our self-reliance or allegiance to the world will only result in us being led away from who we were originally made to be and it will cause our destruction. 
And so Jesus went to the cross to set us free from our sins. This was his ultimate motive. Galatians 5.1 says, it is for freedom that Christ set you free. It's right there. His sole purpose is for freedom that Christ set you free. I have the joy of being married to Paddy, who is the lovely tall fella who was up here um, leading us in worship a few minutes ago. Um, now, unfortunately, there are lots of lovely things about Paddy, don't worry. Unfortunately, last year, Paddy found out that he has something called celiac disease, which for those of you who don't know what that means, basically means the body sees, your, uh, sees gluten as some enemy substance to attack. So if you gl eat gluten, the gut attacks it, but it doesn't really attack the gluten, it just attacks itself and it stops you taking up vitamins and nutrients, which you can imagine over time is damaging to the body because you're not getting what you need. It's pretty sad, really. I'm so sorry. Um, so <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm kinder than that at home, I promise. So last year, we received this letter saying, you have celiac disease. You now need to adopt a strict gluten-free diet. And that was it. That was all the help we got for a while, which was quite confusing. Because um, we had lots of questions. No one was really telling us why that was a problem, why the body does that, why it's damaging. We knew the kind of rough ins and outs, but we didn't realize it was gluten-free right down to the very crumb, that there was no cross-contamination allowed, which is a real faff for wanting to double dip in the butter, because I have to clean my knife every time. <laughs> but, you know, in sickness and in health. Um, <laughs> So after some time of slowly figuring this out, we found ourselves in Sainsbury's, which is our shop of choice. I'm not paid to say that. It's this magical place in Sainsbury's known as the free from aisle. Yeah, you see where I'm going with that. I like it. Um, sometimes you've got to be obvious about these things. So in this aisle is stacked with food for all those with allergies and intolerances and diseases, in Paddy's case. Um, foods that are free from the things that will damage the eater if they eat them. I'm talking free from pasta and bread and crisps and chocolate and uh, soy sauce, because apparently that has wheat in it as well, and all kind of random things. And ignoring the fact that they're all ridiculously expensive, um, they are a blessing for people like Paddy, because if Paddy's food is free, free from gluten, then Paddy's body is free from gluten. And if Paddy's body is free from gluten, then his body is healthy and his body is free from the very thing that over time could cause him serious harm and damage. And that's a bit like what it's like for Jesus to set us free from sin. Our hearts are free from sin. Our bodies are free from sin. Our spirits are free from the very thing that over time will cause us damage and destruction. And as I was unpacking this passage, particularly verse 15 that I mentioned earlier, it got me thinking, what is it about sin that Jesus is setting us free from? What are the things about sin that if we indulge in them will eventually harm our bodies, souls, and minds? And so we've looked way, way back, and we've looked to Jesus, and now we're looking at us today and how we live things out differently to our friends in the Old Testament. Well, what is it that Jesus sets us free from? Jesus' sacrifice on the cross means, firstly, we are free from the penalty of sin. Hallelujah, because that penalty of sin is death and eternal separation from God. That's it, point blank. Sounds awful. Sounds like the worst kind of punishment we could ever endure. Guaranteed death and then guaranteed eternal separation from God. Imagine the pain. I don't know if this is how it happens, but imagine the pain of having denied God your whole life 
So then get into the final days when he comes back to judge the living and the dead, realizing he's real, realizing he's good and wonderful and powerful, and then being separated from him forever because you didn't say yes to the new way of life Jesus offers us through his death and resurrection, that you didn't say yes to being sprinkled with Jesus' forgiveness and freedom, and so you were separated from him forever. That's where we were headed before Jesus went to the cross. But in that horrendously glorious sacrifice, our passage tells us his blood obtained eternal redemption. And then it goes on to say that we can receive the promised eternal inheritance. We get to live forever in the presence of our Lord and Savior. By his blood, we are set free from the sting of death. We all because the one who least deserved to die, died for us instead. The most perfect, blameless one died in our place. And this is ridiculously amazing news. We are set free from the penalty of sin. And two, we are also set free from the power and presence of sin. When Jesus died on the cross for us, sin lost its hold over us. Through his death and resurrection, the chains that we were bound in came loose. They were unlocked, they were broken, they were destroyed so that we could take them off and be set free. Because Jesus defeated the enemy. Jesus defeated the king of darkness and destruction. He had his freedom moment. And this is freedom we can and do know now. We can live in this freedom now. In the message version of the Bible, which I encourage to use as a supplementary um, addition to other translations of the Bible, it rephrases the end of the passage like this. If that animal blood and the other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, think how much more the blood of Christ cleans up our whole lives inside and out through the Spirit Christ offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from all those dead-end efforts to make ourselves respectable so that we can live all out for God. Jesus doesn't come and offer another temporary fix, like the blood of goats and calves. He doesn't just make us shiny on the outside and leave us rotting on the inside. He comes to give us complete freedom from the inside out. As our pastor said, he comes to cleanse our consciences. Those Old Testament sacrifices were a very shallow thing. They were a ritualistic cleansing that people carried out so they could stay part of their community and not be shunned. But nothing about it regenerated them. Nothing about it was about growing intimacy with God and getting to know him more. It was a temporary fix for their messiness, but it made them clean on the outside, but it left them with the same mental, emotional, and spiritual struggles as before. And the dead works, our passage mentions here, refers to the worldliness or approaching things with a religious spirit, not acknowledging our new birth in Christ, not receiving his grace and so still trying to earn God's love somehow. And that's how we tend to approach God when we have an unclean conscience. And what's the problem of not having a clean conscience? What's the problem with believing that sin has a hold on you or is ever present in your life? Well, when you see yourself as dirty, you don't feel able to approach a holy and righteous God. See, because of the freedom Jesus won for us on the cross, sin itself no longer stops us coming close from God. But negative sin awareness does because our sense of guilt and shame leads us to self-sabotage. 
to see ourselves as too unclean to be able to approach God, to come close to God. So we don't come close. We pull away and most of the time we turn back to sin as a way of finding some kind of comfort or punishing ourselves for our messiness. When we look at ourselves as sinners instead of saints, we're very quick to forget the forgiveness and freedom we find on the cross. Instead, we try to work hard to make ourselves clean and often pull us away from the very one who's made it possible to come close to him, even though we're not perfect. We cannot forget that just like the scapegoat, Jesus took on our sins on himself and he took them out of sight. They are forgiven, they are wiped off, they are wiped, the slate is wiped clean. God sees us as holy and blameless somehow, miraculously. That's the freedom Jesus paid the price for you to have. And if you don't hear anything else today, please hear that. If we walk in the mindset that sin, sin still has a power over us and defines who we are, then we are wasting the sacrifice Jesus made for us. It isn't something we have to wait for eternity for. We are free now. And I still sin, and you'll still sin, but we are sprinkled with the blood of the Son of the Lord Almighty who died to take away our sins. We are forgiven, we have been set free from sin. And so I'm gonna ask you a question that I was asked this week and it hit me hard. Are you more aware of your sin or are you more aware of the fact you're forgiven? If we live under the forgiveness Jesus extends to us, we are set free from all guilt and shame so that we can spend this life growing in relationship with our loving Father, getting to know him, growing in intimacy so that when Jesus returns, we will then finally be face to face with him and we will be a people who know our Saviour. We will be a people who have spent their earthly life loving him with their whole self so that when we finally get to be in his full presence, it will be the sweetest reunion you could ever imagine because finally you've come home to the one you've loved most your entire life. Not a stranger that you prayed to a couple of times and read a few stories about because you felt too much of a disgrace to come close to God. There's an invitation here, an invitation into full freedom so that we can fully love Christ, free from the penalty of sin so that we can know him and love him forever, free from the power and presence of sin so we can approach him with intimacy and closeness and genuine reverence for him this side of eternity, knowing that our heavenly father doesn't look at us with disgrace, but complete grace with complete unconditional love, complete absolute longing for us. It's for freedom that he set you free. He loves you that much that he wanted you to be free from all the rubbish and set free to be fully you so that you can fully love him. It was a once and for all sacrifice. So as we come into land, let's think about where we'll be tomorrow. Think about where you'll need to remember that his sacrifice is once and for all. In your homes, in your colleges, your unis, your schools, your offices, your warehouses, your coffee shops, wherever you'll be, as you face the challenges of the day, remember that it was once and for all. As you face temptations and feel the pools of the world, remember it's once and for all. In your mental health struggles and your insecurities and your worries, it's once and for all. If in your failing friendships and your difficult situations, it was once and for all. In your deepest, darkest sin and your mountain of shame, it was once and for all. And let's do whatever we can to hold on to that, 
Set it as a name for your morning alarm. Write on a post note and stick it on your laptop. Get a friend to text you every hour of the day. Do it like school and take out a biro and write it on your hand. That it was once and for all. The Lord Jesus became your high priest and your sacrifice so that you can be covered by his blood, set free from the penalty of sin, set free from the power and presence of sin, set free to be fully who he's made you to be so that you can fully love him in return once and for all. Let's pray together and see how God wants us to respond to this today. So why don't you stand?